Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Vessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey is a professor at the Middlebury Institute. He's part of the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the said institute. But the reason that he's here is he recently uh, hosted a podcast titled The Reason We're All Still Here which is about global problems and governments and basically what we're going to talk about today. So, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to talk to you. The pleasure is all ours. So why don't we just start with what is this podcast? Why did you want to start it? And and what is this this issue about global problems? Because according to the Biden administration, the major problems we're facing are great power competition with China. I mean, we're going to we're going to compete with China uh, but we're also going to cooperate over some issues. So so what do you mean by global problems and, and what is this podcast about? Yeah, well, so the backstory is we had a documentary podcast. I mean, first of all, I wanted to make a piece of art, right? Like I, I'm, I'm a professor. I mostly write papers no one reads, which is like not all that satisfying <laughs> of, a, of a life mission. And so a couple of years ago, we decided we wanted to do something that was good and scholarly, but ultimately reached a wider audience and and really existed as a piece of art. So we did a two-season podcast on the Iran nuclear deal, trying to tell the stories of the people who participated in making that happen, right? An effort to solve an international problem with diplomacy. Um, that deal is dead as a doorknob now, and things are pretty depressing. And so we thought it would be good to write something about People who aren't part of any government, but who take it upon themselves when governments can't or won't cooperate to try to make the world a little bit better and, and safer. So there's maybe a little mix here of, of a slight shaming of governments for not figuring out how to, you know, do their effing job, but then also an effort to be a little bit inspiring because like, you know, you wake up and the world sucks and it's like, why am I going to work today? And so when when you have stories of people, you know, when the first one starts in the middle of the Cold War, people who find a way even when things are really dark, um, you know, at least for me, that like helps me trudge up that hill one more time. What is what is your actual background in in political science? Uh, you're a, a nuclear uh, expert. Where did you come from initially? Yeah, um, boy, my origin story. I mean, it's a it's a weird one. So I was a philosophy major in college, and I love epistemology, the study of how we think we know things, um, which <laughs> the answer is we probably don't actually know things, but that's okay. Um, Especially if you're a political scientist. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then I I I didn't want to be a philosophy professor, and and so I was like, well, like international stuff is kind of interesting. Um, and so I moved to D.C. with a philosophy background and kind of got roped into national security issues, which has just always been really weird for me because I kind of at like a fundamental starting point just don't 
believe all the stuff everyone else believes. And and it's always interesting to me to interrogate why people believe certain things. I, I like the problem set. You know, I, I, I think it's interesting to have a career in which you try to make the world safer. Um, I feel some obligation to do it because I do think much of our discourse is just insane um, or at least ill-informed, I guess is the nicer way to say that. And so I stuck around in D.C. and I got a, I got a Ph.D. actually not in political science, but in policy studies because I like don't care about well, where'd you go from the University of Maryland because um, I just didn't want to leave D.C. Right. I, I just wanted to be around D.C. and I kind of got really into arms control and and this sort of universe where to me, nuclear weapons are really fascinating because they're very technical. So there's a bunch of technical stuff you have to know. But the problems they pose ultimately are philosophical. You know, like, what does it mean as a species to have the ability to commit suicide? This is like a heavy thought, you know, and it turns out since I started studying it, we found so many other ways to kill ourselves. But to me, that mix of these very narrow questions, you know, like understanding how a nuclear weapons work, a, a nuclear weapon works, how to verify a nuclear arms control agreement, married to these like really profound philosophical questions about what that power means about us as a species and how we govern ourselves. I, I love that. You know, it's like very big and very granular all in the, you know, same mess. Did you work with uh, under any particular administrations? Was this Clinton into Bush into Obama? What, what, what years are we talking? Yeah. So I moved to D.C. in the mid-90s uh, when I graduated college. I did a summer internship at DOD, which uh, pretty quickly cured me of a desire to really want to work in government all the time. You know, I, I used to go to work at the Pentagon and, and I, I called it the misery factory. And it wasn't just that it helps make misery around the world, because I think it is more complicated than that. That You know, it does a mix of things. But it made me miserable, for sure. And so after that, I kind of just cast myself as permanent critic. Um, I volunteered on the Obama campaign, thought about going into that administration, decided I didn't want to do that. Um, and currently, I'm on, a, I'm on a State Department board. But, you know, again, I just, I don't know. I'm better not as the person doing the fixing, but as the person complaining about all the things that need to be fixed. That's just... I'm a I'm a better complainer than I think I am a, a fixer. So so maybe I could before we even get into the podcast, I'm curious, as someone who takes a bit of a heterodox perspective, clearly, how do you think that the U.S. search for hegemony interacts with the, with the desire for arms control? And, and how, how could that not operate? very well? <laughs> right. So is that that's my question, because as someone who studies history, it just seems like arms control is necessarily not doomed, but it's necessarily victim of cycles that basically are functions of how much of a hegemon or primacist the United States is being that decade. So I'd love to hear about that sort of dialectical tension. Well, I really come to these things from a domestic perspective first. You know, I tend to think that foreign policies expect that countries pursue are expressions of their domestic politics first and foremost. I agree. Exactly. I wrote I wrote a very uh, controversial essay to that uh, tune and, and got much much criticism from my field. But it's the prime mover in U.S. foreign policy. I think it's right. it's, well, it's the privilege of hegemony. You could focus on your politics. Well, I, I mean, I think partly it offends people because it 
implicitly accuses them of lying, right? And and they don't think they're lying. And it's true. They I think they don't think they're lying. They believe that they are pursuing, you know, they, they have imagined interests for the country and they believe that they are pursuing them in a relatively rational, strategic manner. So it is, I think, deeply insulting to those people when you say, in fact, the way you conceive of interests and the way you imagine means are entirely functions of how you think about the society you live in. Um, you know, that when you go meta on someone, it's a little, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's usually insulting to people. So I, I know why people reacted badly. But, you know, so when I look at our politics, I do see this at best cyclical function. You know, it's not, I'm not somebody who thinks that, you know, if you, if you perfectly design an agreement, that's going to that's gonna fix all your problems. One thing you learn quickly with arms control is good agreements don't survive or fail at any rate differently than any other agreements. And sometimes presidents agree to terrible agreements. And it's driven entirely by politics, you know? So, like, a, a very simple example is the Iran nuclear deal was incredibly complex, hands down the most detailed, carefully worded agreement I have ever seen. It is a marvel. And it, you know, gets washed away by Donald Trump, who says he's going to get a better deal. At the same time, that administration promised to get a deal that was better than the Iran deal with North Korea. And they settled for what was essentially some really vague, aspirational language. You know? And so... Partly the the focus of people in my field is what we have this idea like, oh, if we just write the agreement the right way, it'll address these good faith objections made by our opponents. And like, that's bullshit, right? So I, I think we to ask that question, it's really about our politics first. Sorry. Well, no, 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 no worries. So, so then that's, I mean, that's really the problem of liberalism with this fetishization of rationality, this fetishization of reason. And so you have this liberal imperial state that constantly produces agreements that are fundamentally in tension with its primacy power goals. Uh, so do you see any genuine hope in a world where that is the case? Or we're just going to go from like random deal to random deal that'll be abrogated at some point in the future, unless there's some genuine transformation in how people imagine things? Yeah, I suppose I am a resigned liberal in the sense that it seems like stumbling along is all we ever do. And and I would Certainly love to... Certainly under democratic capitalism, that's the case. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yes, right? I mean, we have constructed this system and this system produces these outcomes. And, you know, it just it doesn't seem to me that if you are dealing with the foreign policy piece, I mean, you know, I could imagine some other field where you're completely reimagining our social and economic arrangements, um, which, you know, <laughs> be like, great. But um, as long as things in the country are structured fundamentally the way they are, I think our foreign policy is going to look the way it does. Um, and then that leaves you kind of two questions, right? Which is, do you want to, and by the way, I think both of these are acceptable answers, right? You can go to the root and make arguments for fundamental structural change, which is great. Um, or you could do what I have done, which is, you know, I mean, you just kind of stand on the deck of the Titanic and you're like, you know, that's an iceberg. Could you maybe just a little to the left? How about the left? No, 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 the other left. 
So then uh, we'll get into the podcast in a second. I'm just very curious. That's not going to work for climate change. We're already going to blow. Yeah, maybe not. All of these degrees. So then what do you do where like it's it's not just flat out not working. We're blowing past every single thing we're supposed to do. We're not affecting our consumption whatsoever. Um, In that world where there are it's not only that there's an iceberg. It's like we've hit the iceberg. The ship is sinking are you going to at least allow a few people to get on lifeboats? And they're like, no, 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 stay in your cabins. That's the metaphor yeah. we're at. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, that's why I find nuclear weapons interesting because nuclear weapons are, I think, the first example of this problem, which also manifests itself in climate change. I think manifests itself in pandemics, although we've gotten pretty lucky even with COVID-19 will maybe manifest itself with AI, although although I don't know. But nuclear weapons are like the first time where our ability to destroy our civilization was such like that we could really do it. And it makes you look at the governing arrangements that we have created. And you're like, oh, you know what? These two, these don't work together, right? If you have this system of nation states preying on one another and you add nuclear weapons to it like well that's a really dangerous escalation of this like pretty lousy model to begin with and then i think what we have seen is that we've layered this on and basically what it boils down to is technological advances have created a world in which the problems we face are too big for us to solve at just the nation state level and so all our traditional tools of uh, competition and violence and threats like don't work to address those problems. And so, you know, like we will ultimately have to change or like we won't be here. And I, you know, part of the answer to your question might be just like, you know, like, you know, maybe we don't make it. Right. That's what I think. You know, Marx had that prediction in the Communist Manifesto that you'll either get communism or the mutual ruin of the contending classes. Uh, we might be in the era of mutual ruin. <laughs> I mean, if, if I was a betting man, that's what I would say. But let's um, let let's uh, move on now to the podcast. And, and because I think this this actually gives a clear um, understanding of why you would move to order ordinary people, you know, uh, actors that aren't necessarily associated with the state. So so did your experience in arms control directly affect the, the interest in this particular project, as you said, in the oh, yeah. way Ron deal? I mean, the, the first, so not only, not only does it come out of the, God, we've blown it again, what the hell kind of feeling with the Iran nuclear deal, but the first case study or the first story case study is like such an academic term it's it's really i mean it's a story is something called the black sea experiment and to me that's really hopeful and inspiring although you know we've (laughs) still over the very long run managed to fuck it up um that's a case where in the 1980s when the reagan administration and a succession of soviet leaders were just absolutely unable to make any meaningful progress in reducing the risk of nuclear war. Uh, non-governmental groups, uh, the Federation of American Science, Federation of American Scientists and the Natural Resources Defense Council began traveling to the Soviet Union and doing 
person-to-person exchanges. And in the course of that, uh, they struck up a relationship with a guy named Evgeny Velikov, who was a very senior scientist, who turns out was an advisor to an up-and-coming Politburo official who was Mikhail Gorbachev. And when Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the leader of the Soviet Union, Velikov is immediately seized of trying to find ways to prove that there are arms control solutions to the nuclear arms race. And the Reagan administration is, you know, in the business of saying it's impossible. You know, you can't trust these people. You can't verify anything. And and my favorite example of this is we have this argument that you can't verify nuclear weapons on ships because you'd have to let an inspector on a ship. And the Soviets would never do that. And Velikov is like, we would 100% do that. Why? How about you come on one of our ships with a gamma ray detector and you can actually detect the warhead and you can publish the results? And what's amazing about it is, you know, like Velikov has to sort of maybe not tell exactly the truth internally about what's happening because when it eventually comes out that they're going to let these, you know, American scientists on this ship, uh, there are a lot of people in the Soviet Union because they had their hawks just like we do who are like, no, you know, and Gorbachev has to overrule them, you know, and and so you get this instance where these individuals are looking at these two governments that are being like toddlers and they find a way to actually get on the ship and do the experiment and demonstrate it. And what I love about it is it's absolutely a case in shame because when the U.S. and Soviet Union finally do negotiate an arms control agreement and these sea-based cruise missiles come up, it's the U.S. Navy that's like, nope, we don't want any foreigners on our ship. And they just agree to a, uh, 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 they just agree to take, to first reduce and then ultimately remove these weapons sort of entrust the Russians to do the same. You know, and it's like, again, it's not about the quality of the agreement, right? It's, it's about the domestic politics and how people look at the world. And so what I was so moved by was scientists just were a proof of principle. That's all. Yeah. Talk, talk about that a bit more. If you could get into the bigger details, because I think like you, what, the, what interests me about this series is that it, it really is an intention to, to what I see as the major problem, which is the overweening power of just state formations. Like, I think you could tell the history of the 20th and 21st century as the rise of state formations that by this point in time are effectively, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I kind of do think this autonomous, you know, that that almost operate with their bureaucracy outside of human agency. To, to put it colloquially, it's almost like Skynet has become self-aware um, that, you know, even if you replace this president with that president, the, the structure is moving forward. And I think it, you know, it, it, it articulates itself in a number of morbid symptoms. The one that I point to the most is that all these gazillionaires want to like escape Earth. Um, you know, say what oh, yeah. you will, the Rockefellers or the Carnegie's, they didn't want to escape Earth. They, they wanted to dominate it and put their names on opera houses. These guys just want to like leave the species with the, well, with the gold. These guys have all read the, you know, fucking fountainhead a little bit too much. Right. I mean, this is, yeah, this is that, the, the curse of the yeah, it's a dumb idea, right? I mean, but but there, there's a reason. I mean, I if we just went on strike with all our money. Eh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, what would also, we ever do without Elon Musk? How how yeah. could we possibly survive? 
I, I totally agree. But but so could you get a little bit more into the details of the story and how that how that relates to this larger, you know, you're, you're a technical guy, at least in part, this sort of like techno structure of the state that exists outside of human agency? Well, I mean, I think there's a there's a sort of big conceptual way of thinking about it. And then there's just kind of the narrow practical experience that people have with it every day, which is you have these institutions that are functionally self-replicating and they create people who are dedicated to continuing the way things are because that's how they learned things work. And I, I don't, these are not, I don't think these are bad people. I think these are people who are just functionally meat puppets in a, in a, in a, in a conceptual machine. And the way that I express this is I would have all these arguments, um, when I would go into meetings where, uh, you know, you're talking with some government officials and you're like, and particularly you see this all the time in deterrence. And I, I had a very specific case where I was explaining why I thought the way that we were approaching nuclear weapons in a, in a very specific way was wrong. And the issue is we never say when we would or wouldn't use them. Right. And, And in particular, we try to be ambiguous about it. And, the way we achieve ambiguity is not actually by being silent, but it's by saying contradictory things, which is not ambiguity. It is just incoherent. And I was making this argument to a U.S. government official who then very patiently lectured me about how you have to understand calculated ambiguity is the way in which we effectively deter. You know, and he has this like whole thing and he's explaining how we do it. And I literally interrupt him and say, look, look, I, I studied under better people than you did. I understand how we do it. What I am saying is that the way you are doing it is dumb. And he looked stricken, you know, because it just so much of his worldview was this is how we do it. And to be in a, a successful professional, you learn how we do it. And so then you keep doing it that way. And what I wanted to do in the podcast and what I think addresses your question, I'm giving like these stupid like long answers. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me this morning. But it is so hard to break people out of that rut. And, and that's what I loved about these stories because these are people who are like, look, you can verify this agreement. And it's like, well, no, you can't. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm like just going to get on the boat and I'm going to wave the gamma detector around and I'm going to have the numbers and I'm going to show you that you can do it. You know, and then they're kind of like, oh, you know, so it's just, you know, I, I think part of what we need, and this is like very hard, like this is like not a Washington kind of op-ed argument. People need to change the way they think, right? Because we become so rooted in this whole superstructure of, of, of a government that people imagine behind the scenes is like some super government that knows what it's doing. And, you know, you pull the curtain back and they, they don't. Right. And then the question is like, ontologically, you like epistemology. I do too. I also like ontology. Like how do people view the world fundamentally? Right. And the question is, could you get that transformation in, in mind without transformation in material? I'm skeptical. Personally, I, I, think, it's, I think it's probably pretty tough. Yeah, it's pretty tough. So this is like, I, I am so pessimistic these days. This is why I say the only way to save the earth is to subscribe to American Prestige. But um, I want to talk <laughs> a little bit about um, the episode three, which is the space junk, because yeah. I've been advocating a long time the way to solve the climate crisis, just put all the garbage on huge spaceships and launch them into the sun. 
but apparently that isn't correct. So could you tell me what is space junk? And, and this is such a compelling and, and wacky story that we haven't talked about um, and how this fits in again to this larger story that you're telling. Yeah. So if you go to this fundamental idea that we have problems that are too big for one government to solve by itself and that our traditional tools of dealing with our problems basically suck or inappropriate. Space junk is a small but kind of clever example of that problem. So whenever you put something up in orbit, and you have to understand how orbit works, space, like orbit, is not an altitude. It's not like you go a certain distance above the Earth and then you stay up there. You would come right back down. What orbit is, is if you imagine like throwing a baseball or a football or something so hard that it falls over the horizon, what it would do is fall forever over the horizon in an ellipse around the Earth. That's orbit. It actually takes energy to come back down. So like once something's up there, there's like a slight exception to this because there's like very tiny amounts of atmosphere. But basically once something's up there, it's up there forever. Every time you put something in orbit, there's a little debris that's created. You know, little explosive bolts that pop off, little pieces of metal. Sometimes satellites die. That debris stays up there forever. And if it ever hits another satellite, it is moving at like seven, eight kilometers a second. It would shatter that satellite. And so what we have learned is over time, there's more and more mass in orbit. And there is a theoretical point in the future that if we don't sustainably manage this environment, that we could get what are called debris cascades, basically chain reactions, which is like, I think, the plot of this movie, Gravity. What's so wild about this to me is there's no way to solve this with sovereignty because you inherently have to share orbit because things are falling, they're moving. So you can't, like people with space are like, oh, seize the high ground. It's not ground. And so you, you literally cannot solve this on a national basis and you can't like threaten to nuke someone if they put debris in orbit. So you... You actually have to ask nicely. Like you have to go to other countries that are put, putting things in space and you have to make an argument from shared interest about how we will, in a fair and equitable way, use this commons. And like that is so contrary to the way we think about problems. And what I love about it, by the way, is like the Air Force is sort of like gets this, well now it's the Space Force, like much better than, say, politicians do. And that just comes from the practical experience of what it means to operate in this domain. That's that's really interesting because the, 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 the formation of the Space Force, the fact that we branched this off of the Air Force and created a separate military institution for space is, is counter, it seems to me, just in in principle to the notion of treating this as a commons. It's about claiming the territory and militarizing it. And I wonder, like, how does that tension resolve itself with the folks who are in Space Wars, who, as you say, understand, you know, probably better than the people who uh, created the Space Force, what's going, what's really, you know, going on there? So the first thing I would say is it absolutely runs counter to the intentions of the people who created the Space Force. You know, if you look at the executive order that Trump signed, if you look at the rhetoric around it, like they absolutely were imagining, you know, space-based lasers zapping things. So, you know, their goal was to create something stupid and evil and horrible. 
I think, I love it when people make policy that's like the G.I. Joe comic books that yeah, I used to I, read when I was a kid. It's fantastic. Well, you still get <laughs> uh, flashes of that where, um, you know, this congressional report uh, that Congress created a panel of uh, alleged experts that almost just recommended space-based interceptors, which if you actually understand the requirements, it, like it's like the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Um, but that, you're right, is absolutely intention. And so I, I have been someone who has consistently argued that having a space force will ultimately resolve itself in a more favorable way. Like, it's not going to be perfect because, you know, like, we're still human beings and we're still Americans and we still, you know, we have a bunch of ideologies that are, like, very weird and, you know, uh, are, are hard to replace. But having people whose full-time job is thinking about the actual way orbit works is much better than having some former pilot do it. Because anytime you talk to, like, a guy whose job was to, like, fly bombers about space, it's just, like, that's a little bit unfair because, you know, there are some people who flew bombers who are smart. But, like, like it is just not a, that is not a useful background for this particular domain. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's, it's intention because that, that tension is in all of us, right? Like we, to the extent that any of us are able to think about what a world that looks fundamentally different looks like, uh, we're like all a little bit hamstrung by the fact that we grew up in this other world that we can sort of look at and be like, yeah, you know, this is probably not going to work forever. Right. But I, I, I don't know, maybe you can see the future. I, I can't fully imagine what a, what a better world looks like, which I guess in part is why. I'm no, fine I, with I slowly I'm, resolving tension. I'm in charge of it. Um, could we actually talk a little bit about space and nuclear weapons? We talk about anything you want. <laughs> what if you're like, no, fuck it, move on. Um, so, uh, but but uh, as long as we're on space, what do you think about this domain of space and sort of uh, weapons? Because I know that's an emergent area of research in the policy world and political science. And as someone in arms control, is this going to be the next sort of large area that we're going to have to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about that? You know, we're going to get kinetic weapons like tungsten yeah. rods that are being dropped. Yeah. So it, yeah. it turns out all <laughs> popular stuff is dumb and doesn't work. And it's to go back to this idea about like space-based missile defense interceptors for just a second. Uh, I used to work at the center for strategic and international studies. And, and, and we had a guy on staff who oh, loved missile defense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it was good because I showed up and it's like, oh, okay, I this, I I have a different view, but this guy loved missile defense, like it was just like a like full on huge fan, and I'll never forget. I asked him about well, what about space based interceptors, and he was like, oh God, no, I actually want this to work, you know. So I I kind of have always been of the I don't know if you know Mort Halperin. Mort Mort used to say this amazing thing. He's still alive. He still says it. You know Mort Hal. I mean, I know of Mort Halperin. I, I know love Mort. Mort is, Mort is, Mort is like a parent. Mort does say the whole idea with the defense budget is that a tiny portion of it is actually valuable, and a tiny portion of it is deeply dangerous, and the vast majority of it is merely wasteful. And our job is to take the deeply dangerous portion and turn it into the merely wasteful. Uh, and so, a lot of these ideas, like space-based interceptors, tungsten rods, like th those are those are not going to work. And so they're ultimately just wasteful. What's really dangerous right now, uh, and what I think we have not fully worked through, 
the system that China has just tested, which is similar to an old Soviet system uh, called a fractional orbital bombardment system. And so this is you take a nuclear weapon and you put it in orbit and it can either do a part of an orbit or a couple of orbits and then you bring it back down. And the Russians and the Chinese are looking at this because they want to defeat our missile defenses, which makes sense. But from our perspective, we see it as a capability to conduct a surprise attack and decapitate the U.S. And so you have a very classic arms control problem, which is we're building defenses, which they see as offensive. And so they're building a capability to defeat those defenses, which they see as defensive. But we see that as offensive. So you're going to get this kind of back and forth. And it's a new problem. I mean, it's an old technology, but it's it works now for new technology reasons. And it's like there are no good academic articles about it. People haven't really thought through it. Um, and so it's a whole area that we have to like wrap our heads around. Yeah, this is it's it's kind of grim to consider this at a time when even existing arms control like, you know, New Start is barely got extended only because Trump didn't get reelected. Um, and it's well, withering it's on the now. vine the because have... there's no right. The Russians have, have effectively pulled out of it. And, yeah. um, you know, do you do you see any I'm, I'm sort of taking on a tangent here, but do you see any reason for optimism? I know yes. there's been some movement on the Chinese front to, to to have, you know, some very preliminary kind of arms control talks. But but as uh, in general, where do you see that? effort going uh, I do. in the near I, future. I am optimistic, and it's one of the reasons I did the podcast, picking the first story that I did. When FAS and NRDC start going to the Soviet Union in the early 1980s, with Reagan and Andropov, things are bad. There is no hope. Things look horrific. And it's a couple of years later, things look suddenly much better. And so I think we have consistently seen these cycles where things get very dark and then things seem to improve. And the, I think the trick is to keep in mind that when things are great, they're probably going to get bad again. And when things are bad, you're going to get opportunities later. And just, you know, the thing that makes a difference in the Soviet Union is like, and drop off dies. And like, if you look at the current situation in the world, which seems so grim, you know, like in 10 years, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, and Vladimir Putin will almost all certainly be dead. You know, they're all in their 70s or up, right? And so when things seem so dark, I think we forget how contingent our world often is. Um, and, you know, like people croak. We all die. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know. Is the next group going to be better or worse? Hard to say, but it will be different. Can we talk a little bit about episode four, uh, which is on this role playing game? I don't know. I wonder if we have a lot of gamers listening. Let's just assume, yes, we have a lot of gamers listening. So what is this story about the role playing game and, and how you, you use this to talk about previous deaths in, in a Soviet uh, in the Soviet Union? Yeah, this is a really strange episode. It was a very difficult episode to write. Um, because it, it kind of captures a little bit of the tension that exists between the world we live in and the world we want to get to. So the, the way I think of it is pandemics can kill us all. 
And they don't give a shit about borders. And we don't know how to respond to pandemics with anything other than very traditional methods. And I think that's what we've seen. So we saw like, you know, there was all this stupidity about closing the border when Ebola broke out in Africa, like that was going to solve the problem. And I think you see it with all the fighting over whether, you know, uh, whether the COVID-19 was a lab leak from China. That's all about, in my idea, my mind, trying to take a public health problem where we have to cooperate with the Chinese and turning it into a security problem. And so what, what you need to do is get to a universe of rules and cooperation, and yet it's really hard to get the people in power to think that way. And at least in that story, we wanted to start with this case of an anthrax outbreak in the Soviet Union because it is, it is true that on the one hand, we have these public health concerns and we have to cooperate. And people say you can't because there are bioweapons. And that, that is part of the truth, right? That, that yes, in fact, countries do sometimes covertly develop bioweapons. So like, how do you get government leaders in the midst of a pandemic or a crisis to think differently? Um, it's not clear to me that it's that easy. So it, it was a weird episode because it doesn't have like a, I don't know if it really has a hero per se. I mean, you know, NTI is doing great work trying to get people to think differently, but I don't know. So then how, how I mean, it might be worthwhile to turn to that meta almost philosophical question is if we're all saying like, it doesn't look like the structures are going to change. How do you really start making people think differently about the world in a less destructive way? What do you think? Well, one reason I like the podcast is I think you can show people by example. Um, I do think that example has impact. I mean, we have, whenever I get like down about this stuff, I think that, you know, there are things that like we have eliminated, you know? I mean, slavery was once a thing, like a legally protected thing, you know? And it's not that people don't still find horrific ways to abuse and exploit other people, but, you know, we did abolish slave the slave trade, right? So you can, over time, I think, make moral arguments. Um, and maybe the simplest way to say it is like, you know, we built this whole economic social system that we live in, and it looks very different than the socioeconomic system of 300 years ago. I, you know, it has all of its downsides, but it, you know, it... <laughs> This is still probably better than that. So we presumably can build something else. I like example. Um, there are other ways, right? Making arguments, organizing. Like, it's not like I think all of these things are... It's not like I think one thing is better than another. But for the podcast, we really wanted to focus on people who just show a positive idea with the hope that it will encourage or inspire people in whatever way they can to like do their part to sort of change how we think about things. Yeah, it's really it's interesting. A big, big problem. And we're tiny, tiny little people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very pessimistic, you know, about uh, our ability to take on these structures whatsoever. But why don't we... Uh, uh, of course you should be, right? Because they're huge and we're so small. Yeah. Uh, but also the people... I'm not, I guess my, my, it's not even a matter for me of size. It's the question of like, have they escaped humanity? You know, have we become so alienated 
from our, our structures that there actually aren't even capable of being taken care of until they go into some sort of death spiral that we could only watch from the side. You know, the, the, the alienation predicted by Marx seems to be pretty, pretty much the case uh, and happening across the political uh, economic world in every issue area. Eh, we lose, we lose. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we talk a little bit um, again? Uh, we're, I don't want to I'll talk about most episodes, but I guess not episodes. But l- what about the laws of the sea? <laughs> and how did you come to this issue? Because this is always talked about, you know, from Britain in the 19th century, yeah. they controlled the sea to now the U.S. We have to be this is this is the last sort of refuge of primacists. Derek, I don't know if you found this as well, but they're always like at the end of the day, it's like, fine, you know, maybe we don't need the bases, but we do need to control the seas. It's all about the seas. So so what is the freedom of navigation, baby? Yeah, we we love it. So could you talk a little bit about this episode on um, ghost ships and fish cartels? Yeah. So this was a, you know, one thing about making a piece of art when you do it as a as a team is people bring different ideas. And so one of uh, the producers, Carl Nellis, was just really into fishing and he wanted to do the Cod Wars which we ended up not doing, but it it sets the stage because like that is a classic example where you have a common resource that could very easily be shared. And like, you know, Iceland and the UK are like ramming boats into one another over the fish, you know? And it's just like, what an expression of like the limited numbers of ways that states can think about allocating resources. Like, wow, if we ram our boats into each other, we'll get a bigger share. Like, seriously? In the end though, we found these two individuals, one who does work like very similar to what I do, which is using satellite information to satellite imagery to understand a problem. And, and another person who's like, like much more like cloak and dagger, who's, uh, you know, trying to uh, infiltrate smuggling networks. But, you know, at the end of the day, it really reflects that the, the ocean is so vast that it's kind of functionally ungoverned. You know, I mean, there there are rules that just, there are not many of them. And for the most part, there's nobody out there. Um, and so like things like illegal fishing just don't lend themselves to these traditional state tools. Uh, and so it, I, I ended up liking the episode because again, it's this exploration of how inadequate states are about governing the space and how individuals can sort of push governments in a a slightly more productive direction. Although Andrea, the uh, Italian guy who, you know, runs the group Infiltrating Smuggling Networks, uh, he's about as pessimistic as you are. Um, And yet, we had a really interesting discussion where he is like, nope, we're going to lose all these fights. All these, all these species are going to go extinct. And in the end, nothing I do is going to make a difference, but I'm going to go down fighting. I think the good news is once we start doing deep sea dredging to get rare earth minerals and you know, deep ocean waters, that should, that should fix everything. I, I yeah, think that's right. Care of it. Yeah, that's right. Just, 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 just discover some resources out there so that we can, uh, yeah, continue applying old broken models to things. But <laughs> so, I like, I like that Andrea was like, I am going to lose and I'm still going to fight. I, I, I felt that, you know, that was inspiring in, in a depressing way. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what we we actually say that exact thing always on the podcast. You know, like we're very pessimistic about left wing transformation, but you got to fight. What else can you do? Sometimes the answer is because fuck you. That's why. Right. Like might as well try. Yeah. I I often say this to my my progressive friends who are like, you know, it's like, you know, we're going to like we're going to lose this fight. And, you know, it's like this is like getting into like a fist fight, like, yeah, I'm going to lose the fight, but I'm still going to punch the other person in the face, right? Like I'm going to exact a cost and yeah, I'm going to lose. But like, there's just something about having that fight inside you that you, you know, you, you have to have to keep that alive or you're, you know, walking around dead. So on that happy note, Jeffrey, do you want to leave our listeners with any final thoughts? I guess that was kind of final thought, like fighter. I want to talk about the last episode because. Oh, good. Let's talk about the. I, I wasn't sure if you this, wanted to go there because. Oh, yeah. It, but let's talk about the last episode. Great. So I find the last episode to be the right ending place for the whole series. Because each of the problems sort of exists in our own moment, in our own time. And the last episode looks at these longer term issues. And, and it, it starts by talking about this decision to send a record into space. Like, how do you explain humanity to aliens? And, and it mostly focuses on then another problem, which is how do you prepare to store nuclear waste for 10,000 years? And what I loved about that episode is the effort to think 10,000 years in the future is goofy. It makes no sense at all. It's impossible to think that far in the future. And the study these people do is absolutely ridiculous. And my producers and I are making fun of them the whole time. And then at the end, one of them says the most wise and profound thing, which is if we solve this problem, it's not going to be because our study was any good. It's going to be because we keep doing this study and because people replace us and keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we sustain it for 10,000 years. And like, that's how you're going to fix the problem. And like, we did our part and then other people need to come along and do theirs. And suddenly my producers and I feel like such assholes because like the joke is on us, you know, because we're mocking how bad their study was and not understanding like, yeah, but they're trying, but they are out there in their own imperfect way, making an effort. And that's admirable. And they know it's imperfect and they're not letting that stop them. And so, you know, like we got to the end of that episode and we went from teasing them to just having this enormous respect for them, even though we think that the actual solutions they came up with were, were obviously inadequate to the problem. And, and that, to me, is a great place to end because like, it's so easy to make fun of people who are trying to make a difference, and it's so hard to be one of those people. And I, I want people to like, listen to this series and come away thinking, like, yeah, I'd rather be the imperfect part of the solution rather than the perfect critic on the outside. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Lewis. Everyone check out the podcast titled The Reason We're All Still Here. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Hey, hey, hey.